Ah, good evening, church. I totally messed up that ending. Uh, that start, <laughs> that ending. Once we got to one. Uh, evening, church. It's great to see you here this evening. If you are outside, making your way in, uh, please make your way in. It's drier in here. Uh, I think. I hope. Uh, I want to welcome you all to Subi Church, and especially if you're here uh, from the kids' club this past week, and you don't normally come to Subi Church. Yes, we had kids' club this past week. Um, yeah, if you're if you're new here to Subi and you haven't been to a Subi service before, I want to welcome you in particular. And since we are coming out of the Subi Kids Club, and since we um, we don't have kids lessons today, the worship today will be a little bit more kid focused, just a little bit, uh, and we're going to be focusing a little bit on, on the theme, which was Stella. So we're going to be singing a few songs that um, have to do with God's majesty and uh, God's light. So. Let's worship God together. Would you stand and sing with us?
song is a song that was hung in the kids club so uh, yeah let's all sing it together singing with us. Ouch. Thanks for putting up with me hitting myself with the guitar and the mic and with everything else. I'm not used to playing the guitar up here. <laughs> um, that song, This Little Light of Mine, I said it was a song that uh, was sung in the kids club, but it's not a new song. Uh, it's an old song that many of us would have sung when we were kids. Even I sang it when I was a kid, and I'm told I'm old by absolutely everyone younger than me, so yeah, that's that. <laughs> but I want to talk about this idea of tradition. The idea of doing the same thing over and over again for a long time, doing things that our parents might have done, doing things that our grandparents, our great-grandparents might have done, 
And sometimes those traditions are just silly and fun, right? We've got a family tradition. When I was a kid, I heard of fried Charlotte's and I was like, oh, like Charlotte's Web, like the spider. Uh, and since then, we've just called them spiders in our family. <laughs> Uh, and that's persisted. Sometimes, you know, the tra traditions, they're just for fun. They're just silly. They're just there. Sometimes traditions lose meaning over time and no longer become applicable and sometimes rightfully fade away. But some traditions are there to remind us of important truths. And it's important to keep those kind of traditions going. I want to talk about one of the most important traditions that the ancient Israelites thousands of years ago. It's called the Shema. And I want to read a portion of it from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Parents, I want you to hear this part. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. This is one of the most important passages in ancient Israelites' um, thought. And it would be something, this would be a passage that they would recite twice every day at least, once in the morning, once in the evening. Sometimes they would just do that first verse. Uh, sometimes they would do more verses than this. And it was important for them to recite this regularly because it shaped and defined who they were as a people. They were God's people. And even though these words were written more than 3,000 years ago, it's still significant to many Jews, even today. And I actually think it has significance for Christians as well. It's a tradition and perhaps one that's worth keeping up. Now let's talk about another tr tradition. Let's talk about communion. Communion is something that the church has been doing for the last 2,000 years. It's a tradition. It's a tradition that reminds us of one of the greatest truths of all time, maybe the greatest truth of all time, and that's that Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died to save us. The bread represents his body, the cup represents his blood, and we eat and drink to remember what Jesus has done for us. And it's so important to remember this, to remember that Jesus died for us, that we celebrate communion regularly. Here at Subi Church, we take it every week, and we're about to do that in a moment. Parents, I want to give you a special note, uh, and I want to encourage you to do something that my mom actually did for me when I was a kid she would take time during communion to explain to me that Jesus died and rose again. And she would pray with me. She would take the time to pray with me. And by her doing this, I had the truth ingrained within me over and over again. And I learned how to pray from her. So I encourage you, in this time that we take, in this time of meditation, in this time where we're waiting for everybody to take the bread and the cup, take the time, take the opportunity to teach your children more about Jesus and to pray with them. This time of communion is intended for those who believe in Jesus, that He died for their sins. If that's you, I'll invite you to stand and come over to the front to, the bread and the, uh, to collect the bread and the cup. And if you don't believe in Jesus right now, know that the offer is there for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
Let me pray for us. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we have, that this time that we take every week to remember, to remember the important truth that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And by believing in Jesus and confessing that Jesus is Lord, we can be saved. So help us to take this time and draw us closer to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll ask the first five or ten fruits. If you can stand up and come to the front, collect the bread and the cup, bring them over to your, uh, bring them back to your seat, and we'll take them all together at the end. of the bread, we remember that Jesus' body was bruised for us. Let's eat together. We take communion together with Christians over thousands of years to remember Jesus died for our sins. Let's drink together. Something you might have picked on um, whenever I worship leaders, I'll always have at least one old hymn in there. And part of that is to, um, is to be able to connect with those who have come before us and with our parents' generation and our grandparents' generation. So we're going to sing one of those now. Would you stand and sing with us as we continue to worship our God?
you've done for us that you have died that jesus came and died for our sins and rose to life and we know that we can have life in jesus thank you for this congregation i pray that they will be blessed through this worship they will be blessed by the message uh, and all glory to you i pray in jesus mighty name amen if you take a seat turn to someone around you give them a smile give them a wave give me a preferred form of verbal greeting good evening I can see a lot of all empty seats around, and it's because of school holiday, a lot of people are away. Now, there will be no Sunday school or kids schooling today uh, for this weekend because of the kids club that we had in the past week. And it was a wonderful week. I came here a few times and I saw that it was such a wonderful time that we, all the kids were celebrating and were singing or was, was screaming too. Um, so we thank you for a lot of people that help out. Iron was amazing. The first astronaut, pregnant astronaut, uh, was really running up and down, up and down. So we were just wonderful to see her screaming with the kids too sometime. Yeah. Um, it's time for scripture at Subi. So this month we're doing a new scripture. It's on James 1.17. As you can see on the board behind me, if we can have the kids and the adults all just read from it. If you can do it, 
without reading it, that's fantastic. Let's start with the verse. James 1.17 Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadow. Thank you very much. My name is Sean Kam. I'm one of the elders of Subi Church, and I welcome you here. Um, I know that this weather is a bit crazy. We've got rain, we've got a bit of sunshine today, but we still manage to see you all here today. Um, we do have the Connect card. If you're just sitting next to a chair that may have one of these cards, this is a way of communicating with our church. So if you're new here or if you have been here a long time, you can still use this. Or if you're tech savvy in front of your seat, it should be a sort of QR code. You can scan that and just give us your thoughts or your prayers. If you've got any thanksgiving to give, fantastic, give it there. If you do have any prayers, requests, put it there too. Anything that you want to be assisted with too, just put it in there so that we can actually read and pray for you. We come to the time of offering. Time has changed. We don't do offering the old way, but yet you can still do it. If you still want to do it the physical way, at the back of the cubby holes on the left-hand side as you're exiting, there's an envelope. You can grab one of those and put your offering in there and just put it in the box just next to it. If you are like many other people, you want to do it the more modern way, there's a way to teach you how to do it. There's a green slip at the back too. That green slip will teach you how to organize your giving and you can use that for your giving from then on. Let us pray for the, the offering now. Father Lord, we thank you for your blessing and your giving to us. Every day that we wake, we look at you with the bright sunshine. Lord, we know that you are the one who brings the light and you're the one who brings the blessing to our family. And Lord, we've got nothing much more to give back to you except for the work that we can do for your kingdom and also the blessing that you have given us now that we are putting back into the offering. Lord, may you use the offering to bless your work in this church and the extent of the kingdom. And Lord, we ask that you continue to make good use of this fund so that we can bring more people and also more ministry work to this church here. Lord, we thank you indeed and we pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Just a few announcements, not many. we got community co coffee morning coming up on Saturday the 5th, uh, 15th of July. That's between 10 and 12, 10 a.m. and 12 noon. It's just outside in the church cafe. This is for us to reach out to the community. There's a lot of people coming through on Saturday um, to the market. Um, so we do have a lot of people that are able to pass by and keep having a look into the church. I do remember that keep looking in the church and it's a means for us to reach out to them and talk to them and maybe invite them to come in for a free coffee. The hour of prayer this month will be slightly different. It's still going to be on Wednesday, 19th of July, but it's going to start a bit earlier from 6.30 to 8 p.m. We're doing it not just as a church. We will be doing it this month. Uh, the Hour of Prayer will be hosting a prayer night with the persecuted church, uh, but with the open doors. Join us and gather together to pray, worship, and hope be encouraged by the faith of the persecuted brothers and sisters. Dave Mears of... Um, Open Doors will be hosting the evening, sharing inspiring stories and persecuted believers he have met from Egypt, Nigeria, Malaysia, and more. So if you do want to come on that night, please RSVP. 
again, on your Connect card or whether your QR code, you can just put it in there. The Women's Bible Study Series is starting. Uh, that's a sixth Thursday uh, session, starting from the 27th of July to the 31st of August. The time will be 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at Subi Church. The Subi Women's Ministry are running a six-week study through the books of First Peter. We will be discussing the text and also some teaching by Debbie Main. This is a great opportunity to gather for the fellowship and also a deep dive into the book of the Bible. All women are welcome to attend. Spaces are limited. Please RSVP on your Connect card and register. It's time now for our congregation prayer. Let us pray together as a congregation. Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Your name be praised on every set of lips. Your name be glorified in every nation on earth. Your name be lifted high by every creature that has breath. You deserve all praise, honor, and glory, and we give this to you today. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May our lives be worthy of the gospel, be worthy of the grace and the mercy that you have shown us. May we live lives of obedience to you. May there be no hint of sexual immorality, greed, selfishness in us, your holy people. Give us today our daily bread. You are so generous to us in so many ways. You have given us life and love and families and peace in our nation. Thank you for giving, providing for all our needs, for caring of all our concerns, for being with us in all our trials. Those in our church family who are sick and physically or mentally illness, we give them to your care. Please heal them, bring them back to full health, and be with them in their suffering. Please provide for those who are struggling with the pay the bills. May those of us who are in position to help reach out with generosity, just as the early church did to one another. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Thank you for that you gave us that you value most, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for our salvation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Give us your Holy Spirit in abundance so we may desire what you desire, that we may desire whatever is lovely, pure, and true, whatever is noble, whatever is right. When we are tempted, lead us out of danger. We want to honor you in all we do. Please be with the elders and the pastor, David Chin and Peter. As they lead Subi Church, give them godly wisdom, discernment, and humility. As they plot and plan for the eternity. Be with our guest speaker, Tim Dorman, now as he brings us the word. May, you, may your word give the strength for today and the hope for tomorrow. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This week's Bible readings are taken from the book of Isaiah and the book of Mark. If you are able to, I invite you to stand with me as we read from God's word. Isaiah 51 verses 17 to 23. 
Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. Among all the children she bore, there was none to guide her. Among all the children she reared, there was none to take her by the hand. These double calamities have come upon you. Who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and sword, who can console you? Your children have fainted. They lie at every street corner like antelope caught in a net. They are filled with the wrath of the Lord, with the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk, but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God, who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors, who said to you, Fall prostrate, that we may walk on you. And you made your back like the ground, like a street to be walked on. Mark 14, verses 32 to 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you, what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the, time, uh, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. You may now take a seat. Thank you, Kendrick. We're looking forward to the preaching of God's Word. just want to say this week at um, Subi Kids has been a wonderful week. Thank you to all those who were involved in the teaching and the leading and those who were prepping and making all the props and such. But most of all, thanks to God, the Word was preached, children responded, and we're looking forward to fruit into eternity because of that. So praise God for that. I want to remind you, I want to let you know that Pastor Dave and Pastor Chin will be back. They're on leave. And they do you agree they deserve some leave? Amen. And uh, they're both on leave, um, and, um, and Pastor David has asked Pastor Tim Thorburn to come and um, preach for us, and I'm very thankful that Tim, um, please come, Tim. He is the husband to Rosemary. He has two adult children, 
has been a pastor for many years, both here in the city and in the country, very close here in St. Matt. Some of you may know that. I know some of you would know Tim. Um, I haven't called him Tom yet. Uh, that's good. Um, I did that earlier, sorry. Um, and he, he serves with um, the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical St uh, Students, mostly at UWA, where he's gospeling, sharing the gospel, teaching and training students. And um, some of our young adults among us are beneficiaries of that and uh, also leads Perth Gospel Coalition, uh, Perth, Perth Gospel Partnership. I, I knew I was going to get that wrong. Very similar to the Gospel Coalition, but anyway, here in Perth, and it's a, um, an affiliation of churches that are about preaching the gospel and seeing um, churches plant churches for the sake of more reach for the gospel. So we're grateful for that. Most importantly, he is a, um, a much-loved child of God, bought by the blood of Christ, and is here to give us the message, and we're grateful you're here with us, Tim. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Uh, I think I'm a stranger to most of you, and it's always a little awkward when you have a visiting preacher, you don't know what they're going to be like. Uh, they could be a complete dud. You know your own pastors, and you know what to expect from them. So can I do a little deal with you? Uh, I commit myself to trying to preach God's word to you as best as I can. Would you commit yourself to listening? Is that okay? Thank you. Will you pray with me as we begin? Father, we ask that your word will become clearer and richer and more wonderful to each of us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I think when you live under the shadow of death, it's probably the most harrowing experience uh, for humans. Because death is always tragic, isn't it? A few years ago, my mum died. The person who gave me life lost her life. She'd been a very significant part of my life for decades. At the funeral, there were about 40 people there. Family, friends, neighbours, others who knew her. But the other seven billion humans on this planet didn't even know that she died. Something that was so impactful for me didn't affect them at all. And it's usually like that, isn't it? Any one death is only significant for a small group of people, not the rest of humanity. Jesus of Nazareth died. He was crucified outside Jerusalem at Passover time, about the year 30 AD. There was a small crowd who witnessed it, some mourning, some scoffing. At the time, it didn't seem particularly significant. It didn't make the news in Rome, didn't break the internet like Tay-Tay did last week. But Christianity makes a lot of the death of Jesus. What's the symbol of Christianity? It's the cross, isn't it? The torture uh, um, wood. We call the day he died Good Friday, as if it's something to celebrate. The Apostle Paul, an early Christian leader, said, May I never boast in anything except the cross of Christ. That's an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? That you, you don't want to boast of anything, not even the West Coast Eagles winning finally this year, not even your family making it, not even the graduation of your children. He wants to never boast except in the cross of Christ. Tonight we want to look at one passage that gives us some insight from Jesus' point of view about his death. It's that passage that was read as the second one tonight from Mark chapter 14, 
verses 32 following. If you've got a Bible, it might be handy to have that open to you. Because we get an insight into how Jesus understood his own death. It was late at night, the night before Jesus' execution. And Jesus and his disciples have been marching towards Jerusalem for a few months now, determined to get there. And Jesus is saying at every point to his disciples and those who would hear, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And disciples often tried to stop him. They were full of fear and apprehension as to what that could mean. Earlier this same evening, Jesus had shared the Passover meal, a little bit like we've done tonight, shared some bread and said, this is my body broken for you. And they drank from a cup. This is my blood of the new covenant. And then he leads his disciples into a garden to pray. And it's an extraordinary scene because we see Jesus up close and personal in a way we don't see him anywhere else in all the accounts we have of his life. Let me just read verse 33 and 34 again. He took Peter and James and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. It's highly emotional. Deeply distressed actually doesn't quite do justice to the language. He was horror-struck. Troubled is this idea of loathsome aversion. He recoils in horror as he contemplates what is coming. Verse 34, he says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. He's in such anguish that he's at the point of death. He's in a cold sweat. He'd rather die than go through with what's coming. Now, when you are in the presence of people going through that sort of emotion, it's almost embarrassing, isn't it? It's an invasion of privacy. I feel like I shouldn't be there with them. I don't like seeing people distraught like that. There's the other side. When people are happy, of course we want to be there. Now, somebody wins an Olympic gold medal, what happens? They shove the microphone under their, their nose and say, how do you feel? We want to know when people feel that, but when people feel this, we want to avert our eyes. It, it seems almost wrong to share this moment with him because Jesus seems to be falling apart and it's painful to watch. And it's sort of unexpected. It's a surprise for three reasons. Uh, one is... If you're following the, the course of Jesus' life and you know what's going to happen soon, you expect this raw anguish and emotion to be shown when he's crucified, when he's hanging on the cross, when the nails are biting, when the, the muscles are screaming, when he's suffocating to death. That's where you expect it. But when Mark recounts that, it's very matter-of-fact. It's, it's sort of distant. He simply says, they crucified him. Now, the movies that are made about Jesus normally make a lot of that. The up close on his face, the, the tears and the blood mixed and streaming down his face and, and the anguish etched all over his body. But that's not what Mark points us to. The emotion is here in the garden. Why? I take it because the physical pain of crucifixion is not what Jesus' death is about. Secondly, it's unexpected and, and a surprise because it's so different to the Jesus we've seen in the rest of the accounts of him. Jesus gets into all sorts of situations that would throw me for a spin. Remember, he's asleep in a boat one night. A storm comes up. The disciples think they're going to drown. They, they wake him up. And what does he do? Is he flustered? Is he sort of... You know, when you first wake up, you just do what 
what comes naturally, don't you? And what comes naturally to Jesus? He just says, shut up, calm down to the wind and the waves. And they do. Jesus never seems ruffled. He never seems particularly emotional except at other people's uh, pain. He's always calm. In, a, in the next passage, he's brought before Pilate and he's in complete control again. And you might think you'd expect better of Jesus than this. And many others have faced death without falling apart like Jesus seems to do. A few years later, Paul and Silas, two followers of Jesus, are imprisoned and they're facing the possibility of death. And what are they doing in prison? They're singing hymns. Like that's amazing, isn't it? Are they somehow more courageous than Jesus? Is the famous story of Socrates, the great philosopher from Athens, who was condemned to death by drinking poison. And as he comes to the, the time when he needs to drink the hemlock, he's confidently explaining and expounding his belief in the immortality of the soul, saying, this is fine, don't worry about me. And he drinks the hemlock and dies. Is Jesus some sort of wimp? that he can't face death without falling apart. Well, we get some insight into what is really happening in Jesus' soul, in the prayer that he prays. It's a striking prayer. It's short. It's to the point. Abba, Father, everything is possible to you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He prays to his God as Father. The normal way Jesus prays, that indicates his confidence. It's his father who loves him, who listens to him, who provides for him. There's no distance or, or resentment. And he prays to him as the powerful God. Nothing is impossible to you. He could rescue Jesus from what is coming. Nothing can stop him doing that if he wants to do it. So if God doesn't do it, it's not because he can't. It's because he won't. It's not because he's unable, but he's unwilling. And the crux of the prayer, what Jesus asks for, is that God would take this cup from me. Or as it's expressed earlier, the hour might pass. The request is that God would take some metaphoric cup away for this impending hour of pain to pass from him. Now, it's a strange expression, describing what's coming as a, as a cup. And the prospect of drinking this cup, the contents of this cup, is something that's causing him dis distress and anguish. And so he prays, Father, please, take it away. But what is this cup? It's clearly something very unpleasant. Most cups we drink aren't unpleasant, are they? They're quite pleasant. He's just uh, uh, shared a Passover cup with his disciples. That, that was very pleasant. But here, it's highly painful. And we need to go back into the Old Testament to see what this image of drinking the cup is all about. Many passages use the image of cup. One of them, which was our first reading tonight, is Isaiah chapter 51. Listen as I read some of that again and see if you can pick up what this cup is that Jesus has in mind. Awake, awake, rise up Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, the cup of his anger. They've been forced to drink this cup, and it's not a Margaret River Chardonnay. 
It's something that is totally foul tasting. The dregs have got the mud in it that as you drink it, it just sort of clogs up your throat and, and tastes bitter. It leaves you drunk and hungover with a vile taste and nausea in your stomach. In verse 19, he describes it a bit more. These double calamities have come on you. Who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and sword. Who can console you? Those things have never come on me. They'd come on Jerusalem. They drank the Lord's cup, the cup of God's wrath. That is the righteous, fair judgment of God that all humans deserve. Now, many people object and recoil from the idea of the wrath of God. An angry God doesn't seem to fit with the love of God. But that's not right. Actually, the love of God is expressed in anger. They're not opposites. They fit together quite well. Let me tell you a story. It's a true story. It was in the news two weeks ago. In December 2020, an intellectually disabled man called Alan Thompson was on uh, Queen's Park Railway Station, on the platform there, waiting to catch his train to work. You may have heard what happened next. A, a, a man who they didn't know each other at all, that had no interaction whatsoever, joined him on the platform and brutally assaulted Alan Thomas and pushed him off the platform onto the railway tracks, unconscious, for no known reason. He just built it into him. The police were called. He was taken to hospital before a train came and ran over him, but he died of his injuries soon after. The judge, in sentencing the assailant, described it as a callous and brutal murder. Now, let me ask you, how are you feeling at the moment? See, that's not fiction. That happened in our city only three years ago, two and a half years ago. An intellectually disabled man was just brutally killed. I hope you're distressed. I hope you feel anger. That somebody could be treated like this for no reason. That if you feel nothing, if, you, if you're just indifferent, then you don't love, do you? There's something wrong with not being angry at that sort of thing. Because the opposite of love is not anger, it's indifference. I don't care. And how do you think God feels about actions like this? Has he got less moral fibre than you? No. He's got much more. He loves much more deeply the victims of crimes like that. He is rightly angry. How does God respond to the endless train of human evil, of the murder and slander, the abuse and assault, the deceit and destruction, to human evil piled up to the sky? God is rightly angry. If he's not angry, he doesn't love. If he's just indifferent, if he just says, oh, well, Guys will be guys, let them do what they want. Then he does not love. So in Romans chapter 2, Paul describes humans as storing up for ourselves wrath by our hardness of heart, our unwillingness to repent, that one day will come up. It's sort of like um, you, you put more and more deposits into a bank account and it finally matures and you get the whole thing, but this is the wrath of God, the anger of God against human sin. Yes, God is slow to anger. It's not a temper tantrum. It's a settled conviction. 
And what Jesus recoils from is not the sadistic torture of Roman soldiers. It's not the agony of physical death, but experiencing the full force of God's judgment on human evil. Drinking the cup of God's wrath stored up for centuries, for millennium, of experiencing hell itself. And he stares down the barrel of hell and he recoils in deep horror. He doesn't say, yeah, bring it on, but save me from this hour. He'd rather die than experience this. Do you see that hell is real and is to be avoided at all costs? Hell is not just some story that Christians have made up to scare you into becoming Christians. No, it's real and we see it as Jesus faces drinking the cup of the Lord. And it tells us that what happened the next day when Jesus was crucified, that the primary action is not about Pilate, the soldiers, the mockers. The primary action is between the Father and the Son. It's within God himself, Father and Son, because that relationship in a mysterious way is ruptured as the Son experiences the built-up wrath of God against our evil. Three hours of darkness that ends with the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what killed Jesus was not crucifixion, but forsakenness. We've already foreshadowed that God's answer to Jesus' request, take this cup from me, is no. His deep, heartfelt, earnest prayer, please, Father, take this cup from me, spare me, is no. But before we explore the the significance of that, we need to notice the rider that Jesus puts on his request. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He rightly asks to be spared, but there's something even more important to Jesus than being spared from hell. It's doing the will of his Father. See, this is not the angry father forcing a reluctant son to go through with something painful. It's the father and son both together. They have the same will. They want the same thing. There's no tension between the father and the son. They're of one heart. The tension is within the son himself. He wants to avoid, rightly wants to avoid, the worst pain that any person can ever experience. But at the same time, he wants to do the will of his father. He has the same heart and will that he die. And what happens? Take this cup from me. The father's answer is no. In 12 hours, he's been tried, condemned, and crucified. 18 hours later, he's dead and buried. He's drunk the cup to its dregs. The father says no to his own beloved son. There was no other way. There is no other way for us to be saved. Well, we've been with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is a harrowing experience. We've been privy to the most private and difficult moment in Jesus' life. We've seen him up close and personal, distressed, and it's distressing for us. We've heard him pray, Abba, Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And we know what's going to happen in a few short hours. He'll be condemned in a travesty of justice, crucified, pinned up, naked, 
in physical agony, nails pulling at his sinews, muscles screaming in pain, the birds circling over his corpse. But Jesus know that, knows that that is not the core of what is happening. He is bearing the heavy load of human sin, of our evil, mine and yours. He'll be crushed by the hot wrath of God's righteous anger against human evil that's piled up to the sky. And the prospect frightens the life out of him. And so he prays, Father, spare me. And the father says, no. We've got to ask the question, don't we? What could motivate the father to say no to his own son? Who's a father here? I know you sometimes want to say no to your kids because they ask for things they shouldn't ask for, but your inclination is to give them what they want. And, and when what they're asking for is so right and good, and what they want to avoid is so terrible, you'll always say yes, won't you? But the father of the son says no. What could motivate the son to go through with it, to say your will be done when he knows what it's going to feel like, to face and suffer that magnitude of pain and suffering? It can only be love for us, can't it? There is no other explanation. So Paul says in Romans 5, very rarely will anyone die for a good person. And maybe somewhere you might see it. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. That's the love of the Father and the Son for you. And for me. Now, many of us doubt that God really loves us. Sometimes that happens because, well, we just overthink things. Our experience of, uh, uh, of life is that, well, some things are unpleasant, and we start to think, well, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God has other agendas. Maybe he's fickle. Look at Jesus in the garden. If the Father says no to the Son, so that you and I can be saved. He loves us. Loves us deeply. Loves us constantly. Loves us to life. Paul explains the logic later in Romans. He says, If God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also with him give us everything? It's pretty compelling logic, isn't it? And it comes out of what Jesus shows us in the Garden of Gethsemane. Secondly, I hope you see the necessity of Christ's death. If there was another way that you and I could be right with God, if there was another way that we could have eternal life, then the Father would have said no to the Son, wouldn't he? If there was any other way it could happen. If you and I were not in such deep, deep strife, terrible strife, would Jesus have gone through with it? If you or your neighbour think, oh, I'll be okay, I've sort of tried hard and maybe I've got this personal arrangement on the side with God, when I get there in the day of judgement, it'll all be alright. Then see and recognise this brute fact of history. Jesus died. He drank the cup. And that bluntly contradicts any such hope, doesn't it? I remember having a conversation with a couple of law students down at UWA. And it was a great conversation. And they invited me to share my understanding of, of Christianity. And I talked about Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And one of them said to me, 
well, that, that, that's fine for you, but it's not for me. And I said, do you realise what you're saying? I think what you're saying is that Jesus was stupid. And they sort of <laughs> it took a bit of a backward uh, response. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, Jesus thought that he needed to die for you. You think he didn't. One of you is stupid. Is it you or is it Jesus? I'll put my money on you, probably. I don't know you, but I'm pretty convinced Jesus was the sanest, most realistic, and understood life better than any of us. And he thought he needed to die for us. If you don't think so, then you've got to, you've got to reckon with the fact that Jesus thought he did. And he knew what it would mean. He knew the pain and suffering it would bring. But he went through with it. He died. Do you see the foolishness of thinking that being a good Hindu or Muslim or atheist will somehow get you there on the last day? Do you see the blasphemy of saying, I've got the right to, to be and do what I, what I want to do, and God ought to be okay with that? Now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus makes it crystal clear what my life deserves and what your life deserves. It deserves the cup of God's wrath, rightly but it also makes it crystal clear that that God I've offended loves me. He has done everything that's necessary to save me from that hell. He's paid the total cost himself in the death of his son. And so can I ask you, does Jesus' death mean to you what it means to Jesus? Do you recognise what Jesus faced for you and for me? Do you recoil in horror that that is what I deserve? That's what we deserve. But do you rebound in hope and love? Love for the one who loved us enough to do this for us. Amen. Let's reflect on and respond to the passion of Jesus. Would you stand and sing with us a final song?
of our Saviour. The sin that he carried. I love the way Tim said it. Centuries and centuries of brokenness of man. The sin that was carried. The wrath of God would be poured out upon our Saviour. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you sent your Son. We thank you, Lord, that You said no, because you loved us. Thank you, Father, that not only you, the Father, loved us, but the Son loved us, and he went freely of his own choice to the cross. There was no other way. And, Father, I pray that we might respond to that love. We might respond in receiving Christ We might respond in obeying Christ and thank you because of that love that we have a hope in Christ.
thank you in Jesus' name. Please go tonight. You are loved by the Father and the Son. How will you respond? Good evening.